Good evening, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Open up to the book of John, chapter 6. We're we're in this uh, uh, series until we start Galatians next year, which is going to be Paul just hammering every opposition and every heresy that stands up against uh, the lordship and the gospel of the freeness of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's going to be Galatians. Until we get there, we're we're spending uh, some time before Christmas and a couple of weeks afterwards going through uh, the life of Jesus and finding points in the Gospels where he he holds out his arms and he makes open calls of invitation unto himself to sinners who need such a saviour. So last week, uh, we we saw Jesus' merciful call in in the book of Matthew, come unto me all who are labouring and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And today we find ourselves in John chapter 6, and it's going to be verse 37. Now, this sermon, this this snippet is, uh, I'm wondering how much I'll explain. I'll do my, uh, an odd thing for me and say less rather than more. Uh, Basically, Jesus is preaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath in the Jewish Jewish covenant. That's what he's doing. And and what he's preaching on is a section of Deuteronomy and a section of uh, Isaiah, which in fact, uh, uh, providentially reflect some accounts that happened to him just the day prior. See, Jesus is preaching on, out, of, uh, out of the living bread from heaven, uh, uh, preaching on God's mercy in the synagogue to these Jews because he was a traveling rabbi and he was asked to do so. And as he's preaching, people turn up on their boats and uh, march from the beach, sand still in thongs, and they come into the synagogue that he's, sitting, that he's preaching at and they put up their hands and they want to ask and they say, sorry to interrupt, just we're here for the free feed and we're wondering where all the free bread is from yesterday. That's what they do, because just the day prior, Jesus had done one of his most famous miracles, which was that as, as he had gone out for a little retreat with the other pastors, what, what would become the 12 apostles, he took them out to a little uh, a, 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 a green countryside, and then these masses of people came and found them, and they wanted to hear Jesus teach. So he kept on teaching them, and as the day grew long, they realized they had no food. It was, it was far too far to go back and, and get people food or to send them away to feed. So Jesus is the merciful shepherd. He does a miracle, and he gets the kids uh, 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 jats and cheese, a little uh, little tuna, tuna tin, and, and he gets the bread and the, and the fish, and he prays over it, and it just multiplies, and he feeds what would numerically be upward of 20,000 people, but were uh, at least 5,000 men gathered there that day on the countryside, and afterwards there was baskets of leftover food, and there was God's provision, his mercy, his miracle in feeding everybody. Now, as he walked on the water to escape those crowds and go back to the synagogue the next day for teaching, as he's sitting there and teaching authoritatively, they come in and they want to interrupt what he is teaching to receive free bread again. Now, it's precisely in that encounter that Jesus starts dialoguing with them and rebuking them for wanting something as useless as free food when what God is trying to put on offer is eternal life through the bread that came down from heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself. That's what he rebukes them for. Because why are you laboring? Why are you jumping on a boat? Why are you walking into synagogue? Why are you sitting here and begging for something as silly as bread? Don't you want eternal life? <laughs> Don't you want to be saved from hell? Don't you want to be forgiven of all of your sins and receive into yourself eternal, immortal life of God? Wouldn't you prefer that? And, and, and as he says that, these people, they, they, they start getting quite offended. Would you believe it? People hear preaching from the Bible and they get offended. It's a crazy different world we live in today. But these people get offended and go, you don't have the authority to rebuke us in this way. 
And you also don't have the authority to say that you've come down from heaven, nor that you can give us eternal life. You're not better than Moses, the miracle worker of the desert. You're not better than our forefathers. Who are you? And it's exactly precisely then that he tells them, in the midst of their unbelief, that he challenges them. And says, I mean, of course, uh, uh, you can't believe in and of yourself. Just because you want free bread, which Jesus offers, doesn't mean that you can also come and receive repentance and faith and salvation from him. Because here's something tricky. Anybody alive and breathing can want bread. Except for the celiacs, they, that wasn't invented back then. But, but, but anybody breathing can come and want bread. No matter who's serving it. Jesus, Muhammad, or Buddha. Handing out bread, anybody can want that. But when Jesus stands spiritually and offers salvation and forgiveness of sins to all those who believe, who are willing to walk away from their sins, Jesus says to them, the only people who can hunger in that way are those who God the Father actually gives that hunger to. Do you know that actually wanting Jesus and desiring repentance of sin and trusting in Jesus is in fact itself a miracle that God has to do in your heart before you can even come to Jesus. So this is what Jesus says to them. He goes, look, no one can come to me unless God draws him. So I'm not surprised that you're antagonized by what I'm saying here today. But, but even in the face of their unbelief, as he offends them by, by pro- proclaiming God's sovereignty, what he does even further is send out an even more offensive invitation. So in the middle of this sermon of Jesus, look at verse 37. And what he says to them is this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. May the Lord bless that word and the reading and the understanding of that word to our hearts and souls this evening. Uh, this, This reality stands true in the Bible that Jesus... The the Son of God, God the Son, God who came in flesh, this Jesus now reigning as eternal king over an eternal kingdom, this Jesus will receive unto himself as a gift from God his Father, he will receive for himself everybody that he purchased and paid for in his life and death on this earth, precisely on the cross. Every, every soul that he purchased and bought salvation for will come to him eventually at some point in their life and they will be given to him as a present and a gift from the Father. They are blood-bought people. They are people that the Bible tells us are chosen by God before time. That is, if we can transform or, or fast forward our minds to the end of time when this earth is burned up and the unrighteous are sent into hell and those who trusted in Christ are recreated into all glory. If we can fast forward our minds there, every single person who is in heaven or in the eternal glorious state is there because God chose them. And there's no one that God chose to be there who was then lost along the way. And God's not a great accountant, but he got the majority. And he sort of rounded up a few times and added Kalevin in there and made the numbers work. And there you go, enough people are in heaven. Now, there is going to be a precise number of the precise chosen, of the precise people that Jesus died for in heaven. This is what Jesus means when he keeps talking about everybody that the Father has given to me, all that the Father has chosen. Jesus came to represent and bleed for and die for and redeem a very specific group of people, a group of people larger than those that will be lost, mark me, but still a specific and particular group of people. And then it is those people who, after Jesus went up into heaven again, 
the Holy Spirit then comes and brings to life. It is those people who will be in heaven forever. That's what Jesus tells these people in his interaction with them on the Sabbath day in John chapter 6. But there is a, at least in time, in those chosen people's lives, there is a condition that they have to, they have to do something. And the doing thing that, that Jesus tells them they need to do, it's earlier on in John chapter 6, they say, what do we need to do to get this bread? Uh, what do we need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus goes, just, just believe on him that God sent. All you have to do, all these chosen people of God, the only thing they must do, but they must do it in order to go to heaven, is believe on Jesus, is trust in Jesus, is have faith in that Jesus' life and death and then his resurrection from the grave is God's gift to me and that it is totally sufficient to save me. That's what we, God's chosen people, must do. However, this is where, this is where the, 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 maybe a seeming contradiction to you or, or at least maybe the tension from this text comes out is that back in verse 44, Jesus says that faith and belief in Jesus is impossible. He says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. Or in verse 63, he says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Or verse 65, he says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him to do so by the Father. So, so yes, it must be God the Father. It must be the Spirit's giving work. But then we have to ask, but how does that happen? How do, the, how do the elect chosen people of God come to Jesus if it's God that makes them come to Jesus? What is the actual in time thing that must happen? And friends, you're living in it. You're experiencing it. The thing that God ordains to happen in history to be the thing by which the Spirit brings life to God's chosen people is the preaching and the invitation of the gospel made openly. The, the open invitation being, being heralded or proclaimed to people is the thing, is the, the key that the Holy Spirit takes to drive into the heart of the unbeliever to turn it and to give them new life and faith in Jesus Christ. So, so where some people want to sort of start here going, I, I don't know, how can I make sure that I'm one of, one of God's chosen people? I mean, I, you're, you, Jesus is saying here, and, and I bet this preacher is going to say, come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus, be saved from your sins, don't go to hell, believe in Jesus. But I can't believe in Jesus unless I'm one of these chosen people. How can I know I'm one of God's chosen people? Now, now my answer is really simple. There's two ways that you can know for certain that you are or are not one of God's chosen people. The first is that you die unrepentant in your sins and wake up in the terror of hell. And then all of your philosophical answers can come to you and you go, there you go, That's now I know. I was not one of God's chosen people. The only other way to know for absolute certain, because I'm guessing you would like to avoid that one, the only other way that you can know for absolute certain, but you may know, that you are of God's chosen people, is that you come to Jesus and believe in his gospel. That's the only way. And as soon as you do that, you know for certain. Now, now it, between those two options, guess which one the gospel preacher is going to try and convince you to take up, right? 
It's the same one that Jesus wants you to do. It's the same one that Jesus preaches on. It's the same thing I've been saying every time I stand up here, which is that you must come to Jesus and be saved. And once you do, you know you're God's chosen people because Jesus himself said no one can come to Jesus unless God has chosen them, unless God draws them, unless he brings them unto Jesus. So having sort of removed... Any excuse that might come into our, our religious, hyper-philosophical, I was catechized as a child, I already know this stuff, I'm rejecting Jesus for, 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 for religious decretal uh, elective reasons. No, no, don't be silly. Jesus calls, Jesus commands, and Jesus invites every single person, regardless of their sin or their background, to come to Jesus, and he rebukes any excuse that is made upon who might or might not be chosen. Spurgeon said, these two things are, are standing glaringly obvious in this verse. That salvation is sovereign from God. He gives it to who he will. And that it is absolutely free to whoever wants to come and take it. And he says that there are some of us who love the gospel being preached to souls. And for some silly, idiotic reason, they, they get really uncomfortable with that salvation being sovereign from God. Or that there are other people who, who love that salvation is sovereign and they want to preach those five points every single Sunday and they get very uncomfortable with the fact that the gospel is made invitingly open to anybody who will receive. But both these things are in Scripture and both these things are the markers of true gospel preaching. Salvation is of the Lord. Come and take it. Look what Jesus says. Let's read it again. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will by no means. The original language sort of comes out as I will never, ever, ever cast you out, throw you out and be done with you. For the first thing we're going to see here is the absolute unqualified openness of the gospel call of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that he starts even in this verse, the, the second half of this verse, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But I'm going to read a, a section of, of phrases that Jesus speaks between verse 35 and verse 59. He says all of these phrases. He says, whoever. And again, he says, whoever. Another time, he says, all. Whoever. Everyone. Everyone. Anyone. Whoever. Whoever. And again, whoever. In just 15 or so, uh, 20 or so verses, Jesus says these many times that there is no condition added. Whoever, whatever your background, I'm not even going to go and try and like list off a whole bunch of sins you might have done or the sorts of background we might have represented here because, because of, well, there's this story that Spurgeon tells and he says that, uh, that there was this, this old man, fairly wealthy, not super legally intelligent, like, like not, not super aware of all the, the jots and the tittles and the blacks and white lines and the, the, the underwriting of legal codes. And, and so back in the 1800s, he, he was writing his will for his wife because he was on his deathbed and he wanted her to receive everything that he had to give so that she would be looked after in her old age. And he wrote down, he says, I leave everything to my wife, everything in my leaseholding and everything in my possession, Full stop, signed. Now the death nail to his inheritance and his will was in fact that there was a category of his ownings that he had missed out. So, so, so had he just left the will as I leave to my wife everything, she would have got everything. But because he then went and started adding conditions, and he said leaseholding and possessions, but forgot a third category of ownership that legally there was, somebody was able to loophole it and receive every 90% of all that he owned, and she got nearly nothing. 
Spurgeon says this is what, what might, we might be tempted to see happening in the scriptures if Jesus gave four or five, or if I as a preacher sort of listed off different versions of sinners. If I said all the adulterers can come to Jesus, he'll never cast you out. And, and all the thieves and all of the liars, and, and I described things, you might have felt, felt kind of hopeful at the beginning when he said all sinners can come. But then he went and conditioned it. And by the conditions, it sounded just not precisely fit for you. But let's be very open. Let's, let's see that in the text, Jesus doesn't condition it. He doesn't go and start explaining or describing and adding conditions of those who can come or, or more minutely describing us. He just says, whoever, whoever comes to Jesus. You may even think, well, what if I'm a Christian who's committed the unforgivable sin? Now, I might think you're wrong, but I say, who cares? He says, whoever, you can come. No one who commits the unforgivable sin can ever come. So just come and you'll know that you haven't committed that sin. Wherever you stand, either as a new Christian and, or you think you're an aged Christian or you've never been at church before or here you are, no matter, whoever, anyone, whoever, all, everyone, Jesus says come. The one condition is your coming. The one condition to being knowing for certain that you're chosen by God that you are absolutely sealed for eternity, that you will never have to face up to a single ounce of God's wrath for your many sins, is that you come by faith to Jesus Christ. It's not about a baptism. It's not about a Lord's Supper or a membership of any kind or a joining of a group or doing a certain thing or not doing certain things. The only condition is that whoever you are and wherever you are, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, when he was in flesh, said, if you just in your heart come to me, I will not throw you away. You will be received. There is a grand openness. And then he says, whoever comes to me. Now, I'm going to read the same section of, 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 of text from verse 35 down to verse 59. And I'm going to, uh, instead of reading all of it, I'm going to read all the other versions of whoever comes to me. Because there's all these different ways that Jesus piles up the analogies. Listen to what he says. From verse 35 onwards, he says, whoever comes to me, Whoever believes in me, whoever comes to me, everyone who looks on the Son, anyone who believes in him, everyone who has heard, whoever believes, anyone who eats of this bread, anyone who eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, again, feeds on me feeds on this bread. These are all the, the words and the language that Jesus is using to mean the same thing. Some of these things are actually used in the very same sentence. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Whoever eats on my flesh and believes on me, and Jesus is just piling up the analogy to make very clear to us that what is required of us is not a positive action. That, that just because you're hearing me say the one thing you must do to receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins, entrance into the kingdom and family of God, just because we're putting a condition on that and saying you have to come to Jesus, it sounds like what God is saying is, you're no good at anything else, you've broken God's law, you're right for judgment, you're sinful in every way, but here's something you could do. And if you did this one thing, I would be so proud of you. I'll be so, be, be so blessed by you. I, I would owe you salvation. And that's if you can just well up in your own heart this, this coming and this, this adorning Jesus and this clothing Jesus and, and, and give to him your faith. If you can do that, then you will have positively done something that God owes you salvation. That's not what it is. 
Jesus in this uh, uh, dialogue, as, as he talks, he, he said all these things, coming to me, believing in me, eating me, drinking me, uh, 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 coming unto me, all of these things are, are simply to picture an absolute emptiness in the receiver. Emptiness in the receiver, because we're both those things. So, for example, we could, we could strike open a, a Spurgeon's book, All of Grace, and in that, chapter, in that book he has a chapter called, How Can Faith Be Illustrated? Because he knows that as Christians, even though the word there is faith and faith alone, we might try and, try and define faith by good works. That's just how us religious, silly, anti-gospel by nature humans are. And so Spurgeon, what's some good pictures of faith, just so we can drive it home? And he goes, you know what it's like? It's like the eye. This is the eye of faith. When you're looking at something beautiful, something amazing, husbands, your, your wife on date night, uh, uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, a beautiful sunset over the ocean, whatever it may be, the Sistine Chapel, you're looking at that. Is there anything in your eye as you behold such beauty? Is there anything in your eye that is in fact creating that beauty? Is there anything at all that is, that is adding to or that is qualifying or is beautifying the thing that you're looking at? Of course, the answer is no. If, if you were to walk in and somebody's socky in the eyeball and you look up and say, I can't see it anymore, does the beauty itself disappear? The answer is absolutely not. Because the beauty is not contributed by your eye. The only thing your eye is doing is passively receiving the light into your brain, which is conveying that message. As you have faith in Jesus, you're not making Jesus believable. You're not turning Jesus into a savior. You're not taking anything out of him and uncovering something about him. He is shining forth as the savior of sinners, and all you must do is receive that truth into your heart. Or Spurgeon says it's, it's like a mouth. When, when you're eating food at, at your Christmas lunch and you're gorging your face and you're filling yourself, is your mouth an important part of that whole, uh, whole equation? Oh, yeah, it is. It has to open. You have to put the food in there. You have to uh, uh, taste what's... I mean, it's all a, a wonderful experience largely to do with your mouth. But is your mouth adding to the nutritional value of what is being received? The answer is No. The mouth is enjoying it. The mouth is, 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 is breaking it down and taking it into yourself, but your mouth is not contributing. And in that sense, we're told in the Bible that, and in fact in Jesus' own sermon, the gospel is like living bread that gives eternal life to you and God's come down and put it right on your tongue. You don't have to do anything, cook it up, contribute, or anything. You just receive it into your own body and you'll be benefited. Or faith, Spurgeon says, is like, is like just an empty hand. It's not a grip don't think of faith like a grip, because that's something you do. That's something you contribute. You're, you're holding on to Jesus. You're white-knuckling it. You're grasping. Now, while there's a sense that in Scripture, we must grip onto Christ and not let go lest we believe in vain, yet the, the way that we remain holding on to Jesus forever and ever is constantly remembering that it is not our grip that saves us. So that, so that when you receive something into your empty hand, it is, a, it is a sign of faith because your hand is not creating the gift, it's not taking the gift, it's not adding value to it. It's simply, like the other examples, passively receiving into the, from the giver. And in this sense, Jesus has used all of these, these, this language in John 6 to give us a picture of sin. To come to Jesus is to passively receive what he is promising, receive what he is offering, Accept it as true and accept it as your own. You don't make Jesus a savior. 
but he is a savior. You must receive that into you. To come to him also is, is, to, is to leave something else. If you're coming to Jesus, you are leaving something else. We call this in the Bible repentance. This is one of the first words Jesus said in his preaching ministry. Repent, because the kingdom of God is here. Repent, believe the gospel. And, and what was he saying? Was he saying repentance is fixing your life up, making it righteous, obeying God's law, and then you can believe? No, what repentance is, is the, is the inward commitment. And, and maybe for some of you, you have a whole life out there, uh, subscriptions, uh, accounts, relationships, an entire career built on sin. And you may think that to repent, you need to go and get busy about do, undoing all of these evil things that are set up, uh, ready for you to go back to. And, and maybe after that, you can come to Jesus. The answer is no. You must do that eventually, but, but not to be saved. Right now, what is required by this command of repentance, to, to come to Jesus in repentance is to inwardly commit away from those things. It, you must walk away from, you must leave behind certain things. And I, I wonder if as a, somebody who's not a, not a Christian yet, you've been invited or, or you've constantly been harassed by your loving Christian friends that you should become a, become a Christian and believe in Jesus. What are you needing to leave behind? For many, it's sin. It's just the, the allurement of the world and all of its sinfulness and the pleasures and the, and the feelings and the senses and the riches and whatever it is that you've got going on, it, it just feels pretty good. I'm really not in the mood to just go and give up everything I've been working so hard to build, which is my, my love of sin. Jesus says, leave. Leave it. Come to me. That goes to death this goes to, why are you laboring for something even as silly as free bread or, or free sex or, or lots of money? Whatever you've got going on, leave it and come to Jesus. Well, other people, it, it's, the, it's the other people. For you, it's the, the people you'd have to leave behind, the relationships. I mean, I'm, I, I can't tell you how often evangelizing young men. And I say, this sounds great. I don't think my, my girlfriend's on board with the premarital, no premarital sex part. You're a beast right now. You're thinking with an organ of your body that is not in between your ears, you're fearing some gal's opinion over your eternal soul and what God says about it. Are you serious? I mean, I mean, what, what, what do you need to leave? Maybe it's the religion of your parents. that They'll be so displeased to hear that you've become a, a Christian, especially one of these types of Christians, Protestant Christian. Take the Bible seriously, Christian. They wouldn't be happy with that. Or your friends. Or, or maybe an immoral relationship that you're in. Or an entire sexual lifestyle that, that are based around an orientation that you've committed to. Or, or, in a, or, or a whole career or employment that is committed. Whatever you need to leave, Jesus says, drop it down. It, it, it's a large lead weight and you're swimming across a storm. It will kill you. You have no chance. You are, you are dangling by a thread over God's judgment. You don't realize that in a moment... If you're at the peak fitness of your physical physique, you can still drop into hell tomorrow or in seven seconds' time. Come to Jesus. He is worth it. He is commanded by God. He is everything you need. And if you come, he will never cast you out. Look at that promise in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, leaves behind other things, comes to me, leaves behind their own self-righteousness, comes to me, I will never cast out. His invitation is made entirely on the premise that the thing he's inviting you to is all sufficient and ready to go. 
The condition of his invitation to you is based entirely on the readiness of the thing he's inviting you to. He's not saying, uh, and, 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 and therefore, that's why he can be so confident. So in other words, he's not saying, come and help me, I could use your help and we'll see how this arrangement works out. Come on over, I've only got four or five laws you need to keep for most of your life and you know, I probably won't have to kick you out of this relationship. He's not calling you to something that requires anything of you. That's why he can make such an unqualified, almost ridiculous-sounding promise. Whoever you are, no matter how bad of a Christian you're going to be, no matter how useless you may feel you're going to be, or how, how little you think you'll be able to contribute to this Jesus man, this, this God fellow, this, this whole Bible religion, whatever you may think, no matter how, what you're going to contribute, Jesus says, come, you'll never be so bad he kicks you out. Because the thing he's inviting you to is not something that works with you. He's not commanding you as an essential piece of the puzzle to come and complete the salvation puzzle. He's not saying, look, look, I've got this ready-baked whole ingredients and recipe. of I've got this thing called salvation going. And if you just come along and, 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 and just contribute a dabble of salt, the, the bread of life will be ready. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I've got this whole meal ready. If you can just come, and if you set the table, then salvation will be ready to go. He's not saying that if you come and, and you make a really good confession of your sin, then together we'll be able to, we'll have this great atonement for sin. And so if you come, then we'll have salvation. Rather, Jesus is using all throughout this dialogue and this sermon of his in John 6, he's saying, I'm the bread of life. I'm the loaf that when eaten only a crumb of, you receive eternal life. It is ready baked, already served up, ready to go. The only thing you need to do is come empty handed, come empty mouthed and eat. So, so he says, all throughout this passage, he's calling for them to come and get some of the eternal life bread from heaven. He says in verse 27, the food that endures to eternal life will be given to you by the Son of Man. See what he's saying? Come and receive it because it will be given to you, not asked of you. You don't have to contribute to it. Just come and receive it. Or he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Do you see that unqualified announcement of his own sufficiency? He's not saying, I'm a almost baked bread of life. Could you just come and turn the oven on? Could you just come and contribute any? He's not saying that saying, I already am, am baked by God, sent into the world, served up, ready, I'm here. You just have to take. You just have to come and take. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Implicit in that, you're not. You're the problem. You're the sinner. You're the eternal death person. You're the, the sinful iniquity rebellion against God person. Jesus is the bread of eternal. So, so before you start making excuses in your bread, I, I don't think I should come. I'm, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that really resonates with this whole eternal life, righteousness, godliness, holiness stuff. Yeah, you bet. Of course you don't. You're the filthy, hungry, needy, poor, guilty sinner. Jesus is the one we're extolling here as the Savior. You're not, you're not being invited as co-redeemer, as co-savior, as contributor to this whole thing. You're invited as a weak, poor, needy person to Jesus who can give everything. Verse 58 says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
There is nothing for you to give. So Jesus is perfectly confident that if you come, he will never have to cast you out because you've come to that person who meets every requirement that you will ever be asked of. Jesus is sufficient, so his free, that there can be no condition in receiving it because he needs nothing from you. I remember in high school, the PE teacher on a particularly hot summer, I wonder if you can uh, uh, resonate with that, a particularly hot summer, uh, after uh, uh, doing all of these, uh, the, the, this activity that he was making us do, probably just running around laps, it was a cheap school, and, and so the PE teacher, feeling kind of bad, he went and purchased for himself ice cold, a bunch of stuff from the canteen, these, bottle, these packages of bottles of water, and he gave it to one of the seemingly responsible looking guys in the class. And he said, can you just make sure all of the students get this? They need it. I've paid for it. They can just take it. Just go and give them out. Would you imagine his surprise when he found him five minutes later racking up cash because he was charging $2 for each of these bottles of water? Genius. A genius. I, I admire his entrepreneurial skills. But he was, he, was the, he was the anger of the teacher. I've done everything needed. There was absolutely no condition on being able to give it out. It is what people need, and you are adding a condition. And so if we flip this, this is, this is why the gospel is so free. Why maybe when you're hearing it right now, or when you heard it for the first time, you just couldn't quite resonate with the logic of it. I'm such a sinner. The Bible shows me I'm, I fall so far beneath God's law. He's so angry. So what do I need to do? Just, just give me a list, a three-point list, a five-point. There's something I can do. And the Bible just continually says nothing. There's nothing to do. Some of you are going to hell because you're waiting for something to do to get you to heaven. You're, you're condemned precisely because you're refusing the free gift and leaning on, on the obedience, on the requirement from you. And, and Jesus will not honor that. He will not honor the insult that it is to his gift for you to come to the table and ask what he, you need to do. Uh, I'm not, it wasn't me, it was a, a particular sibling of mine, and I won't tell you the gender, the, the pretty classical gender that this usually happens to, but she would, uh, she didn't always get her car serviced, right? So, so here's a pattern that I noticed. My sister might say, Dad, you want a car, I'll drive. And he would say, sure, let me get my tools. <laughs> this would be quite a pattern. If he's coming, he needs the things to fix the thing he's being invited to. Now, now this is the insult. I don't think my sister ever picked up on that insulting pattern, but I did. But this is the insult to Jesus, that if we say, come to Jesus and be saved, and your immediate response is, cool, what do I need to do? Your insult is that Jesus just seems like the kind of guy that needs a bit of help to save sinners. And the person he needs help from is sinful, disgusting, vile old me. He must be so useless, so pathetic, so unable to save sinners that even I could assist. And what Jesus is saying here is, it is so entirely free because the bread that is on offer is sent from heaven, designed by God, totally finished and ready to be received. And he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The body of Jesus has in it a full sufficiency for every one of our spiritual needs before God. As sinners, we need a payment to be made to acquit us of our guilt. Without that, the payment that is made for our guilt is just our, our eternal suffering in hell. So, so to escape that, we need, we need something that can be sacrificed, something that can be made and offered that would, that would replace us in hell, that would substitute us in hell. Some kind of 
Eternal payment for guilt. And that is what Jesus offers. His bread, his body is the bread of life that he gives. The sufficiency is in its payment for your sin. But also, the sufficiency also is is in the, the righteousness. That before God, if we are to be called righteous, welcomed and considered as worthy of being in his presence forever. We require before him, on God's papers, a a fully fulfilled law of God, a righteousness that that God can look at and say, you don't have any sin. You're, You're cleansed. You are righteous. You are good. You are worthy of being in my presence. And though you might sound like that's a high requirement of God, it is in fact a free gift offered in Jesus Christ that everything God required, he He supplied in Jesus the bread of life. We needed to be cleaned. His blood cleans us. We needed the power to be able to believe. He gives that to us. We needed needed power to be able to obey him throughout our life. Jesus supplies that in the Holy Spirit. Everything that is needed, Jesus is. Therefore, he is called the bread of life. And here's the bedrock of your confidence that tonight... If you've never come to Jesus for salvation before, you can come now. Here's the bedrock of that assurance is that God the Father and God the Son can never fight. They can never disagree or be at odds. If you come to Jesus, and and by that I mean if you have an inkling in your heart that you want to receive this salvation and forgiveness, and something is drawing within you to say, "I, I need to come to him. I need to leave behind other things and hope only in Jesus. I need to throw away these other things that are trying to call me back to the path that leads to hell. I need to come to Jesus, whatever the cost. That as you do that, what you're experiencing is what God is doing in you and to you to bring you to Jesus. And the promise all throughout this passage is that that happens to you, and I pray it's happening now. It happens to you because God has from before time started, planned to do that to you, to give you as a gift to his son. Jesus said in verse 38 and verse 39, immediately after our text tonight, he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That is, I'm here to do everything the father sent me to do. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, right? In case you're wondering, wonder what God sent Jesus to do. Here's the answer. That I should lose nothing of everything that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will rise him up on the last day. This is why in coming to Jesus, you can be certain you'll be received, and you'll be certain you'll never be kicked out at some later point in life, is that God has decided to save you and give you to the Son. And Jesus is here saying, I can't be at odds with my Father. I haven't come down here to secretly save all these people that he wanted to send to hell. It's not why Jesus came. I haven't come down to to save a certain group that my Father doesn't care much about, or he wanted me to save those types, and I would rather save these types. Jesus is in perfect unity and union and agreement with his father from all eternity. And as long as he is here promising this, as long as he now stands even in heaven promising this through his word, no one can come to him and ever be cast out because he promised his father and his father promises us that we will be received. It's the father bringing you 
even more than it is you coming to Jesus. So if you come to Jesus, you know the Father's bringing you. You know Jesus won't turn you away. And the last beautiful blessing of this is the permanence that Jesus offers. He says, I will by no means cast you out. I will never cast out somebody who comes to me for salvation. This doesn't mean that as long as you believe in him today, and as long as tomorrow you're a bit of a better Christian, and as long as Tuesday you're better again, and as long as by Wednesday you're never going back to any of the things you did in previous years of your life, right? As long as you you get a free check of salvation today, but God will need some investment paid. He does need your righteousness to build, and then you can keep your salvation. And if you fail that, then Jesus will, will kick you out, but he's sure you're good enough. He's not saying that uh, there are conditions, but but you'll get it, you'll be okay. He's saying unqualifiedly, though you continue, in case there was any confusion about this, you will continue to sin, you will continue to fall short, you will continue to fail the standard that is infinitely high to be righteous before God in an absolute sense. You will go back to old sins. You will fail to meet God's law's requirements. You will fail to go to church. You will blaspheme him. You will sin in sexual ways, in verbal ways, in in physical ways, in financial. You will sin. But despite all of that, Jesus promises to you that he will by his spirit sustain your faith in you So that no matter how weak you get, no matter how bad your day or dry your season, he will uphold within you what is required. And that is simply an eye, a mouth, a hand of faith that trusts in Jesus. He will by no means ever. I mean, mean, what what else could he have said? By no means. He didn't say probably. He didn't say most people make it. It's the 1% that fall out. We have a great graduation rate here at Jesus School of Divinity. You'll be okay. He says by no means. Do you think that he was not aware of the sorts of things that people do which would deserve being kicked out? Oh, of course he did. Of course he knew. But to those people and to you, he says, I will never throw you away. You will fall and stumble and fail. You will sin. You will commit crimes maybe. You will, you will blaspheme God. But still, Jesus, have we not learned this yet? His promises are based on him, not you. His salvation is about him, not you. The strength of salvation is based on Jesus, not us. Therefore, he can say unqualifiedly, if you come, you've been brought by my Father. And if you come, you'll never be lost. I'll never kick you out. I'll never cast you away. No one will be lost out of Jesus' glorious, permanent hold on those who trust in him. So do not fear coming to him and not being welcomed. Do not fear being thrown away at some later time. Do not fear being unqualified to meet the standards of Jesus. His only condition is that you're a lost sinner in darkness. And as long as you trust in him, you give up every other vain hope and know in your heart of hearts, Christ alone is the solid rock I must lean on. Everything else is sinking sand. You believe that, you will be sealed in eternal life today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful promise that came through the mouth of Jesus and the pen of John and now into our midst this evening. This wonderful, unconditioned promise that you will never throw away those who come to you. We thank you, God, that you've ordained to save people, that you've been at this sovereign work of a permanent salvation that glorifies you from before the foundation of the world. We thank you that in as much as we see ourselves coming to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, or, 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 or beholding the promises of God, we, we know that this is you working it in us. 
Father God, we thank you that if we merely lean, if we merely believe and receive into our hearts your promises, then we will be saved irrevocably. Father God, I pray that this reality would drive home for people who have been putting it off for years, or people who have who have heard it many times but walked away from it even in, the, in, a, in another season of their life. For whatever reason, them being here, maybe they're even a, a long-term belongers in, in our midst, but Lord God, would you please convert them? Anybody, anybody that walks out of here, Lord God, that does not have an assurance of their being saved in Jesus, they walk under eternal risk every second of their life. But please, Lord, turn them. Give to them life. Father God, draw them to Jesus. Father God, please make them to feed on Jesus and to drink of his blessings and to come unto him and be saved. We pray all of these things in his merciful and wonderful name, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.